Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark's Gospel, the fourth chapter. We're continuing our study of Mark's account of our Lord Jesus Christ, his unique perspective, and slowing down a little bit as we get to this parable, which most call the parable of the sower, but we've kind of identified it more as the parable of the soils. Mark chapter four. Let me remind us of this parable, which Jesus tells and then cycles and circles back to give explanation. Just follow along as I begin reading it again for you in Mark chapter four, verse one. Jesus began to teach them again by the sea and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And he was saying to them in his teaching, listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. After the sun had risen, it was scorched because it had no root and it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked it and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30 and 60 and 100 fold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, they get everything in parables. So that while seeing, they may, not see, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? then how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear immediately, Satan comes and takes away the word, which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on rocky soil or places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and when they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary, then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, they immediately fall away. And others are ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. One of the most dangerous phenomenons in our culture, in our day, in the society in which we live is, is distracted driving. Let me read from you from the DMV website. 
by its very nature, driving demands an extremely high percentage of your attention, if not all of it. Can you say understatement? Yet as you get more experienced and comfortable with driving, you might find yourself more and more willing to spread your attention across numerous distractions. Still, no matter how experienced you are, the more you become distracted while driving, the more your risk of getting into a car accident exponentially grows. When it comes to understanding and avoiding distracted driving, the DMV says this, it's best to look at three types of driving distractions, manual distractions, visual distractions, and cognitive distractions. A manual distraction is Something you do with, uh, with uh, tactile distraction. You uh, take both hands uh, or one off the wheel. Uh, you're eating, you're drinking, adjusting your child's seatbelt, smoking, searching through your purse or wallet, turning knobs in your car. Then there's visually, visual driving distractions. Visual distractions cause your eyes to wander off the road. For instance, looking for items in the floor of your car, checking and adjusting your GPS, changing the radio station, adjusting the temperature controls, taking in the view, doing your makeup. This is the DMV, web, DMV website. Then there's cognitive distractions, mental distractions. Um, talking to another passenger, thinking about something that's upsetting, road rage, daydreaming, and being under the influence of drugs and or alcohol. Then the website talks about one place where all three of these distractions come together. It's a manual distraction, it's a visual distraction, and it's a cognitive distraction, and it's texting while driving. It incorporates all three of those. And I'm sure no one in our church would ever text or respond to a text while driving. Are you laughing with me or at me? or put on your makeup during the car, or eat during the car, or anything like that. The point is this. When you're in a car behind the wheel, what's the most important thing that you ought to be doing? Driving. But distractions can take your attention off what's most important. Everyone knows what it's like to be distracted, especially about something important. Distraction is really shifting our attention from something of great importance to something of less importance. Think about that. It's taking attention from something of greater importance and putting our attention on something of lesser importance. Well, in the soil we are considering today, we come to this great problem of being distracted from God, being distracted from the gospel. The most important person and the most important thing in the universe which ought to occupy our greatest attention and our most constant focus can be distracted. Maybe it's because we're comfortable with our view of God and we think we can handle multitasking. As we noted last week, Jesus provides this parable of anatomy. It's an anatomy of faith and unbelief. And he goes so far as to say, if you don't understand this parable, you can't understand any other allegory, an analogy, any other parable or story I'm going to tell you. That's profound. 
which tells us that the core and the central understanding and interpretation of the parabolic teaching of our Lord is understanding the fundamental difference and nuances of faith and unbelief. In this instance, casting attention from the greatest thing that could occupy our importance, which is God, to anything else amounts to nothing less than idolatry. The soil we're looking at this morning, the third, and again, we're, if you're a guest with us, we've been slowing down to look at each of these soils one week at a time. I think they're that important. This one gives us important insight into faith and unbelief in a way that might surprise some. It clears up any confusion that the disciples might have. And remember, Jesus is doing something in this parable that's instructive. He's preparing them to know what kind of responses they're going to have when they go out to preach. And by proxy, we can see those same responses and be prepared when people hear our witness, when they hear our evangelism, to know that not everyone is going to hear. He quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and following, and in verse 12, and he says, some will have hearing ears, but they won't understand, and ears that hear the message, but they won't understand and perceive. And if they did, they would they would turn and repent, but they're not listening. Listening with their ears, but not with their hearts. And then at the end of that passage in Isaiah 6, he says only one-tenth will respond. At the end of this passage, he basically summarizes and says only one-fourth will respond. Now, this is not teaching one-tenth versus one-fourth. It is teaching what Jesus taught in Matthew 7. Broad is the road that leads to destruction and many there be that find it. Narrow is the road that leads to the true gospel and repentance and few, few find it. That's the principle he wants the disciples to know so that when they're evangelizing, they don't give up and they're not discouraged. He's talking about the seed being sown by these men who will be sowers in the reflection of him as the great sower. Now, as we said, parables come from Two, the word parable comes from two Greek words, para, along, which is beside, balo, which means to cast, to cast alongside. It's just an illustration. And Jesus chooses to illustrate faith and unbelief in this domino tipping, first domino of all parables, these four soils. He pictures four soils that represent four kinds of heart responses to Jesus and the word, which is a synonym for the gospel in this parable. First, we looked at the impenetrable soil, an indifferent heart. This was the, the road. The, the seed goes on the road. The birds grab it. He says that Satan takes it away. They're indifferent. They don't care. Hostile, recalcitrant to the truth. Then there's a shallow soil, which is the impulsive heart. This is what we looked at last week, where there's an immediate response, but it doesn't last. When persecution comes and the cost of true discipleship is really paid, there's an unwillingness to do that. And these people back away and say, no, no, that's too much for me. I'm not a Jesus freak. I'm not gonna pay that price. I'm not gonna lose friends or family. I'm not gonna have persecution. So they back away. Frankly, those two are the easiest of these three negative responses to recognize. I wanna share with you, this third one troubles me. This third one is one that I, 
I tremble and grieve may be represented in our church. It's the preoccupied heart. Central point of instruction for the followers was to have ears to hear. And I pray that what that means in these next moments in this text is that we are open to say, Lord, is this me? Is this, could this be me? Verse 13. Do you not understand this parable? How will you not understand the parables? The sower sows the word. What does that mean for us in this context? We'll look down at verse 18. For this soil, others are the ones on whom the seed was sown. Now he's talking about people, others. Among the thorns. Notice the thorns are already there extant in the soil. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of, the rich, of riches, the desire for other things, they come in, they enter in, they choke out the word, and it, the seed, becomes unfruitful. Let's take a look now in depth at the thorny soil, a preoccupied heart. As we unpack this, I want to discover with you three threats that can choke out the gospel in a preoccupied heart. Three threats that can choke out the gospel in a preoccupied heart. The first is in verses 18 and 19a, the worries of the world, the worries of the world. Now, let's begin by looking at the end of verse 19 to see what we're dealing with, and we'll transport that final interpretation back into these parts. He says, these things, other things, enter into the heart, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So he's talking about these threats to the seed that's been sown that come in and choke it out. They put it in the shade. They give it no light. They, they suck up the nutrients. They drown it out. This, by the way, is the explanation of what we read in verse seven. If you'll look back up there, other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns are already there. The thorns came up and choked it off and it yielded no crop. I do find it interesting. It's just interesting. I don't know if there's any great interpretive value to this, but it's interesting that the word used for thorns here, akanatha, is, is a bramble common to the land of Israel it was also the same word used of the plant that the soldiers wove together to give Jesus a crown made of thorns. They were spiny bushes, often forming impenetrable thickets. They were also called, as I said, brambles. Maybe you've seen those or know about them. The seed, which is the gospel message, the proclamation that you can be forgiven by the vicarious imputation of Christ's righteousness to you and the giving of your sin to him and his resurrection from the dead, you can be forgiven for your sin. That gospel message, that seed, lands in soil which there are already latent, extant distractions, 
preoccupations that will compete with allegiance to the Lordship of Christ. He says these thorns eventually choke out the good plant, the seed, so that it cannot bear fruit. Explanation happens in verse 18. Others are the ones on whom sin was sown among the thorns. They're already there. And these are the ones who have heard the word. I won't take the time to repeat our study last week, but the word word here has an expansive use. That The word logos has a little bit of an accordion effect in the New Testament. Sometimes it's talking about the written word of God. Sometimes it's talking about the gospel itself, the message But in all, it's the message of God, whether written, incarnate, or proclaimed or spoken. It's choked out. But it's not choked out immediately as in the shallow soil. What chokes it out? Well, this first choking influence is the worries of the world. It's a choking threat. The worries of the world literally The Greek says, the distractions of this age, the distractions of being alive in the time that you're alive. Have you ever thought of a a time, can you think of a time that has more distractions than ours? Some translations say the cares of the world. It's basically a general concern for the temporal instead of the eternal. Living and thinking more about this life and the years that we'll spend on this planet than giving consideration to time and eternity beyond this world. These distracting cares preoccupy the mind. They leave little room for any serious consideration for spiritual or eternal things. I think this is pictured by the man in, in, in Matthew 8, 21. Jesus says to him, follow me. And the man answers back and says, well, first I must go bury my father. <laughs> now, was his father dead and there was a funeral going on? No, 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 that's not what he was saying at all. I think what he's saying is, I wanna wait till my father dies. I and get my inheritance from him, the things that I want most in this world. Once I have that sewn up, then I'll consider following you. What a picture. I'm distracted by what I want and what I can get out of this world, which causes me to postpone serious consideration of absolute sold out commitment to Christ. These people seem to have affected consciences by the gospel. They feel badly about sin. They acknowledge in some way that the gospel is true, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one can come to the Father except by him. They may even abstain from certain things that the word of God condemns. They they may even take on new habits, church attendance, Bible study, prayer. But eventually, something substantial changes. the cares of the world, the distractions of life, what life can offer become more important than Jesus and his values and his morals and his truth. Now the Holy Spirit clearly understands our proclivity and our inclination, our tendency to worry. 
So lest anyone think, well, to tell me I shouldn't have any worries in this world, I I mean, there are things that I'm I'm concerned about. I'm amazed to see the care of the Holy Spirit as he cares for our worry. Now, I want to take just a a quick detour and show you how the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of, of, of the scriptures that you hold, has cared for your care, has taken care of your worry. Flip over to Luke chapter 12 for a moment. Luke 12. Again, Jesus in the context of teaching both his disciples and the larger crowd. Someone in the crowd, Luke 12, 13. Luke 12, 13. Someone said in the crowd, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. I just think it's funny. This Jesus guy seems to know what to do with right and wrong. My brother won't give me what I deserve. Maybe he can arbitrate for me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Can you just underline that in your heart? Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up great treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We're gonna come to riches in a moment. And he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you eat for your body, as to what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. This is the point. Look at the birds. Consider the ravens for they neither sow nor reap. They don't go plant fields to eat. They have no storeroom, no barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you by adding, by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? Remember that the next time you're concerned. Is this going to improve your life expectancy by worrying? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about the other matters? Consider the lilies. Let's look at flowers. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men, of little faith. Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. Do not keep worrying. For all these things, the nations of the world eagerly seek. The nation is a worrying group. But your father knows that you need these things. Seek first his kingdom. These things will be added to you. 
Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, and unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Now, here's what he's doing. Jesus and his genius is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if God cares about birds and flowers which are going to die, how much more do you think he cares about you? Why are you worrying then? That's the lesser to the greater. But he also argues from the greater to the lesser. Listen to Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. That's the greatest thing he could do. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? You see the genius of the spirit of God? From the lesser to the greater, if he cares about birds and flowers, you're more valuable than them. Of course he cares for you. Why are you worrying? And if he's taking care of the greatest thing you need, which is your salvation, will he not also take care of the lesser things you need from the greater to the lesser? The profound genius of the spirit of God should always amaze us. If he cares about little things that are his creation, he will certainly care about you who've been created in his image. So when you examine the things that worry you, (laughs) worry us, I think the root cause, I don't want to step on an air hose, but ready? The root cause is your theology's broken. Worry is indicative of broken, insufficient, wrong, unbiblical theology. Worry comes from the lack of faith. Worry fundamentally disbelieves that God will indeed take care of us. It disbelieves that God is enough for us. It disbelieves that the gospel truly brings good news in any situation. It fundamentally disbelieves that God's word is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. Who by worrying has added anything to our lifespan, the Lord says. So in this context, Jesus says there are people who believe the gospel, have some at least surface level of repentance and the worries of the world come in and they think that giving attention to the worries of the world that concern them ought to preoccupy more of their life than the gospel and Jesus. And it's usually, as Jonathan Edwards says, it's usually postponing God, not ignoring him. Oh, I'll deal with God someday. I'll come back to the Lord someday. And the worry of the world pushes any power of the word of God out of a preoccupied human heart. That leads to a second threat that can choke out the gospel in a preoccupied heart. The deceitfulness, the lies of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. Look in the middle of verse 19. And the deceitfulness of wealth or riches. There are few obstacles to following the Lord Jesus and committing yourself to the gospel than the lies and the deceitfulness of riches. Said another way, the love of money or materialism or things. 
You know, you find out something interesting about the Lord's perspective on money here when he calls it the deceitfulness of riches. That tells us that money and riches and wealth and possessions and materials have innate in them the ability to cause lying to happen in your heart. Now, these are inanimate objects. They don't lie, but we begin to believe lies about these things. What do we believe? <laughs> that they'll make us happy. That we're not happy now, but if we had riches, we would be happy indeed. A little Bible study maybe we should take real quick. Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Everything you have here is temporal and vulnerable. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust could destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. A few verses later, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two lords. No one can follow two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. What are you talking about, Jesus? And he tells us, you cannot serve God and wealth. Impossible. They cannot both be your master. They cannot both be your Lord. If Jesus is your Lord, he will elbow wealth out of your priorities. And if wealth is your Lord, it will choke out Christ in your priorities. Later in our study of Mark, Mark 10, 25, we'll hear Jesus say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. That's in other words, saying riches can choke out gospel influence in your affections and in your priorities and your values. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Notice he didn't say go become poor. He said, if you have wealth, if you have riches, don't consider them more important than God. And I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, those rich people, those rascal rich people, if they would just get their act together, the church would be better, the world would be served. Because someone else is rich and you're poor, right? Except in Matthew 6, Jesus says, if you have more than one thing to wear, which I think all of you do, if you know where your next meal is coming from, which I think all of you do, if you know where you're sleeping tonight, which I think all of you do, then biblically you are qualified to be wealthy. And if you doubt that, I can take you to places in Africa and talk to men and women who have no assurance of any of those things day to day. An elder in 1 Timothy 3.3 3 
must be free from the love of money. First Timothy 16, the love of money, not money, not money. It's not bad to have things. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And listen to this, some by longing for it, by wanting to be richer than they are, have wandered away from the faith. That's exactly what's happening in this part of the parable and pierced themselves with many griefs. Hebrews 13, five, make sure your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. John, 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in that man. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, but the, lust, the world is passing away. Why, let's think about this, back up. Why is wealth, why is money, why are possessions, why are things, why is materialism such a threat that chokes out commitment to Christ? Why? Let's drill down on that a moment. I think it gives people a false sense of security. When you can purchase most everything you need, including health insurance, including place to live, things to eat, if you have what you consider is most of what you need, it's very difficult to convince a person like that that they need Christ. It's difficult living in Jackson or Johnson County to tell people they have a great need for a savior when most of them would say, I don't really have many needs for anything. I have a lot of wants. I've long been amazed at how Jesus, how Jesus taught the disciples to pray. We say this, we sing the Lord's prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer. You remember the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6 is not the Lord's prayer because he could never pray that prayer. It says, forgive us our sins. And what we typically call the high priestly prayer in, in uh, uh, John chapter 17 is a prayer that we, we could never pray because he says, glorify me with the glory I had before the world. This is our prayer. This is disciples' prayer. You know it. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be, hallowed be thy name. I went, I went King James on you. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the next thing say? What's the next phrase? Say it together. Give us this day our daily bread. Stop. Which of you has gotten up this week needing to pray that prayer or you wouldn't eat? We're so wealthy. We're so blessed. Which I think makes us particularly susceptible to the thorns of this world and its offerings. Choking out commitment and value and priority to Christ and his good news. I can't remember the last time that I prayed for daily nutrition it's great to thank the Lord for a meal at the beginning. Maybe we should start in the morning by thanking him for the provision that's coming. Is it possible 
that our financial situation in America is so blessed that we never or rarely ever feel the need to seek God for what we daily need (laughs) and what he so graciously often simply provides. Can I ask another question? Is it possible that my friends in India, in Africa, friends I know, names I can give you who pray this prayer every day, who only have one thing to wear, who aren't sure where they're gonna sleep tonight. Is it possible that they may have a greater spiritual advantage than you and me? Beware of the trap that is the love of money. Consider yourself wealthy. Thank God for his blessings and remember Neither James nor Paul to Timothy tells rich people to not, be, not stay rich. He says, don't put your trust in them, in those wealth, in, in your possessions, in your wealth. Don't put your value in it. And always be ready to give it away for kingdom purposes. Why? Because these riches are deceitful. They lie. They tell you they bring something and satisfy something that they never can. Had a friend who <clears throat> was actually an acquaintance who was wealthy beyond description. I mean, with the B, billion dollar wealth. And he had a, a serious heart condition. Went to the literally, we always talk about, well, this is the best doctor. He bought, he paid for, he flew in every cardiac doctor he could that he knew. References to references and, and, and uh, uh, talking to the best doctors who said, this is the best guy, this is the best guy. And in the end, he died. All of his wealth could not extend his life. It couldn't take away the reality that the wages of sin is death. Again, Regardless of our spectrum on the wealth scale, money is not the root of all evil. What is? The love of it. Valuing it above gospel values. That's the problem. Because when we do that, it can choke out our commitment to the Lord himself. Typically, again, as Edward says in that famous sermon to the young people where he says, if you put Christ off now, you'll put him off later. I'll deal with Christ later after I get or enjoy but not now. The worries of the world can choke out the gospel, the deceitfulness of riches. There's a third threat in verse 19, the distractions of life. He makes it general. He makes a a very broad sweeping statement, the distractions of life. And verse 19 at the end, the desires for other things. It's pretty general. The desires for other things enter in, choke the word, it becomes unfruitful. The language here, I think by the Lord, is intentionally vague, intentionally general to apply to a multitude of distractions. It's a catchphrase about what's most important to us and our values and priorities that can enter in between us and the Lord. In the same uh, account, Luke calls it the pleasures of this life. Luke 8, 14. 
And all of them share one thing in common. They draw our resources, draw our attention, draw our time to them more than our resources and attention and time being devoted to Christ and his mission through us. Why does that happen? Because we believe a lie. The satisfaction can be found and maintained by anything other than Christ. And here's the great deception. Things can satisfy us. So this message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Things can satisfy us temporarily, but they don't last. So it makes us seek other distractions and temptations or adding to our wealth and possessions. Peter reminds us, by the way, in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 and following, that this world is going to be dissolved. We kind of say it as a throwaway phrase. It's all gonna burn. Guess what? It is. It's all going to burn. Do we act like we believe that? Is there anything so valuable to you or to me that we wouldn't sacrifice it for a greater gospel good? Any commitment, any affection? Remember the account in Matthew 19? We call it the rich young ruler. He comes up, teacher, what good things shall I do that I may inherit, obtain eternal life? That's the right question. How can I go to heaven? Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? Only God is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? <laughs> There's 636. Which ones do you want me to keep? And Jesus gives us an amazing hermeneutic for the law. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall Love your neighbor as yourself. And this guy actually says, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? That's bold. Jesus said, okay, really? You've, you've obeyed? You've, you've got that down? Okay, here, one more thing. If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. What was he doing? He was testing this man's values. When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving because he was one who owned much property. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What we said earlier, it's easier to go through the eye of a needle. Now this is what's important, is the disciples' response to that. They said to him, Lord, then who can be saved? Think about that. They didn't say it's bad that that rich guy can't come into the heaven, into heaven with us. Who can be saved? They were identifying that if they sold everything, if they gave everything away, if that's the standard, who could possibly be saved? And Jesus says with people, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. It's about values. 
more than possessions. Remember in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is interacting with his disciples and Peter makes that great affirmation, you are the Christ, the son of the living God in Matthew 16. He goes on to talk about discipleship and he says in Matthew 16, 25, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. And then Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man, listen, if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul and then he asks this question, what will a man or woman give in exchange for their soul? Is it possible that the distractions and the cares of this world can over time shift into the focus of your life and draw attention more than Christ himself? is a wake-up call. It's also a reminder that if you see this happening in someone, don't be surprised. Jesus is instructing his disciples. When people wander off because they give more attention to other values than Christ and they go back to worldly pursuits and they give up commitment to Christ, don't be surprised. This is no strange thing to him. The study should make us look at our own hearts and our ministries to ask if it's possible that the cares of this world are dangerously close to elbowing Jesus out of preeminence in our affections, in our, our priorities, in our checkbooks, on our calendars. Listen, folks, I, I pray that this is instructive for you about your ministry and how you share the gospel with people and how, how you see this happening in your ministry and not in your own life? And the proof for everything is at the end of verse 19. Bearing fruit. It becomes unfruitful. Over time, this person's life bears little obedience, evangelism, priorities, passion, sacrifice for Christ, but all attention, focus, honoring, and sacrifice is for what we want. And we become unfruitful. That's important because now when he turns to the good soil, you know what the significant identifying feature of the plants who take root in the good soil is? They bear what? Fruit. They bear a crop. So how do you evaluate your own heart? Let me encourage you. If this convicts you, that's a good sign. That's a really good sign. If you want to deny this and say, there's no way that the world can have a choking influence on me, let me just beg you to wake up. Look deeply into your heart 
Look at your calendar and your checkbook and see where your time and money go. And it will reveal very quickly what those priorities are. Jesus promised, you don't have anything to worry about. I take care of birds. I make plants flower. If I can do that, I can take care of you. And because I have given the greatest sacrifice of my son for your sin, do you not think I am able and willing and ready to support you and supply your needs in the smaller things? What do you worry about? What do we worry about? Our prayer should be that these worries may have no traction or choking influence and our affection for not only the gospel in Christ, but our ministries in sowing the word ourselves. If you know the Lord, this is an encouragement. You know, it's very possible that you're, you're here as a guest. Maybe you're here, you've been listening for a long time to these things. And God is doing a work of conviction in your heart. And you're asking yourself hard questions. Let me just beg you, that is not the devil. And it's certainly not your flesh. Listen for the Holy Spirit's convicting presence to personalize this. Don't listen to sermons for other people. Listen for your heart. 